Claire. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank um, you. Good to have you. Um, so you're a professor in, in, in forensics and environmental science at yes. Staffordshire University. And you've been there for 18 years, which, which seems like quite a long time. What, um, what kept you there? <laughs> That's a really good question. 18 years is a long time, actually, isn't it? To be in one, in one particular organization. Um, I tell you what it is. It's the, the dynamic nature of the job that, you know, if I was doing the same thing for 18 years, I don't think I'd be doing the same thing for 18 years, to be honest. But because it's changed so, so it feels really rapidly. I mean, if it doesn't feel like 18 years, and I feel like the role has changed, the work that I've done has changed, partly because the world's changed. You know, we've got different challenges now than we had, you know, 18 years ago, both in forensic science and sort of criminal justice sector, but now also when we're thinking about environmental sector as well. And I think because of that, the job feels it feels day to day different. But then looking back over the years, so many new avenues have opened up because of these different challenges. It's just kept me completely sort of immersed. And 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 being at Staffordshire University, we've been doing forensic science for years. My goodness, de- decades. So I'm very well seated there within a, in a very w- well established department that allows me to be able to sort of start, you know, tackling other challenges. So I'm very lucky, actually. I, I really am. I really feel it. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I just half wonder if it is, in fact, the nature of it that has changed, that has kept you there, or is it your inquisition that has really led the change? Which do you think it's more of? <laughs> a little from column A, a little from column B, I think. Because the things that are changing, I mean, some of these things, I mean, they're really serious, you know, think, things that we really need to sort out, if, if, you know, at a societal level. But at the same time, I've always been pretty nosy about sort of what what is going on and what are the current challenges and and asking questions and asking questions for example of the police so what do you, what do you currently find more difficult now what would you like to do what's your vision of the future of policing and, and using forensic evidence and I think I've asked those questions constantly and I'm getting answers which then opens more doors and and you know leads to these projects that honestly some of them if I look back over time completely different to each other they really are and I think that sort of being inquisitive and trying to find out people's problems and you know stakeholders problems that's the thing that's ended up sort of making such a diverse job yeah and I think we kind of skipped over it just when my glib introduction at the beginning (laughs) forensic and environmental they're not a natural fit together necessarily are they forensics and environmental science and you were the first forensic scientist to actually use the same technique and approaches into environmental research what 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 made you think of that what made you think hang on a minute this could work there this is uh, yeah so this I, I this is where I started looking at microplastics particularly but just to add here as a little aside environmental forensics it is a thing. It is a thing. But most people, or when I say when I say most people, when we think of other forensic science, if you say, what do you think about environmental forensics? They'll go oil spills, things like that. Mm-hmm. And it'll be like illegal waste management, uh, you know, dumping of rubbish and things like that. There's also wildlife crime investigation, which, you know, is a whole area in itself is something I do too. But the bit that signed, ended up with me having this forensic and environmental science professorial position was all about microplastics. And that's really where I was, I was sort of the first to go, hang on a minute. 
I've been looking at fibres for many years, but from a forensic point of view, from a, well, how can we tell two people have been in contact from looking at the fibres that could have come from their clothes? And how, what what methods do we use? How can we interpret that? And how can it be useful for a case investigation? So I'd spend all my time on that. But then, you know, over the last, was it around 2015, I really started to really get into this environmental element of this was where I said, well, hang on, the environmental sector is sort of wanting some similar questions to be answered. So they want to know, for example, well, how much microplastics are there in a particular, say, body of water or in the air? How's best to analyse them? And what does it all mean? And it, I kind of sort of two and two together. So we go, well, that's the questions I've been asking for, well, my entirety of my career. But from a crime point of view, can I do the same thing, but from an environmental perspective and really try to improve the science that's going there because you know okay it's not you're not sending people to prison are we and you know the the risks for getting the science wrong with forensic science of course is huge you know we don't want to convict an innocent person we also don't want a guilty person to get off free and when we think about microplastics in the ocean i mean these are serious concerns but it's not necessarily we're pointing fingers and people are going to jail but we are making big decisions and, you know, we're, we're doing bans, we're bringing in new legislation. And if the data that supports that isn't robust enough, in my opinion, that's a problem. So maybe it's a little overkill. But my my big thing is being, well, the science that we, we're generating, you know, the, the methods we're using should be just as good as the stuff that we use in forensic analysis. It's good enough for court. Fantastic. It should be good enough for our environment because we are serious about that as well. And so that's really been where I've kind of, overlaid these two two areas this the, the methods we use the way we interpret it and this idea of just great science for the purposes of looking at the environment as well yeah I mean I completely agree you're quite right and it is harder when you're looking at something to do with the environment yes you're not sending someone to jail I mean arguably should we be who knows yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> question for another day but then so what just tracking back just a little bit to to pre Staffordshire University, what actually were you always were you always interested in great science as as you delightfully call it? I I've, I've definitely always been driven by science, um, but I have been someone who's changed what I wanted to do as a youngster many times. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted I'm um, going back. I, I wanted to be a, a sailor. I, I wanted to be a jockey. I wanted to then be a vet. Then, and all of these things, you know how you sort of like you change, you go on with this. But the one thing that I really realised that I really loved throughout all of this was science. And and that's sort of what I pursued with with qualifications and that before university. But it was the investigative part that got me. And I absolutely set myself as a, well, what do I want to do? I, I actually want to be in the police force. And I want to be someone who's investigating these crimes, but from the policing perspective. And back back then, it's 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 different now, but there are certain criteria that you need to enter the police force and your eyes are one of them now my i've got terrible eyesight i really have i'm really really short-sighted and i never even i didn't even reach the threshold nowhere near and i was told quite you know quietly from the when you have these these assessments and this 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 is not going to be possible and i was absolutely devastated absolutely i thought well i kind of set myself for this now i'm 18 years old this is what i want to do and now i can't do it because of something as silly as i'm short-sighted so it was my mom who came in and saved the day, in fact, because she said, well, you know, you're interested in this idea of, of investigations and you've always loved science. Yeah. What about you combine the two? Have you thought about forensic science? And do you know what? I hadn't. Well, 
it wasn't that I didn't know anything about it. I, I, what I knew about it really was from TV, you know, I'm, crime dramas, etc. you know. And I thought, hang on a minute, this, this sounds quite good. And I looked into it a little bit more about this idea of, of applying science for the courts and the fact that it uses, well, it's not even just science, you know, we engineering, computer science, when we think about geology, you can pretty much put forensic in front of any uh, subject discipline if it's for the purposes of the courts and, you know, criminal investigations, for example. And that intrigued me. And I thought, you know, science for this purpose has got it's ticking all the boxes of what I'd like to do. And I don't have to decide right this second before going to university what I'd like that forensic discipline to be. Because I learned early on, you do need to choose one. You can't be like it is in the TV, an expert in absolutely everything. You know, forensic scientists can answer all questions on all. Um, you've got to be an expert in a particular area. But I had the opportunity to actually sort of start thinking about that and exploring, my goodness, how would I like to apply what science to what evidence type? And that I knew, actually, as soon as I started going into, into my degree, I knew this, this is it. And, and I'm, I'm so glad. Isn't it funny how these things work out? So glad I ended up down that route. You know, I work a lot with police forces. I find it fantastic. But I love this forensic side of it. So it definitely all worked out in the end. Certainly. And I bet your tutors adored you and your enthusiasm and your complete focus on what exactly you wanted to do. Oh, yeah. Favourite tutor. Oh, gosh, I, I had a whole heap of them. You know what, what? What got me was this, the passion, the absolute passion for these, I mean, this sort of crime solving and this kind of sense of responsibility that the tutors gave you. And they said, you know, you're doing this job. Think how important this will be. And at the same side, same time as this sort of responsibility and that it wasn't it didn't dampen it it, it, well, it made it exciting to be honest uh, but it was also this idea that you could look in so many different avenues in forensic science you know and if anything it gave me a little bit of choice paralysis because I thought I loved everything I mean I absolutely drug analysis absolutely fascinating this uh, you know application of chemistry for the analysis of drugs but next minute I absolutely love footwear impressions and um, I'm like oh my goodness how do you start linking you know literal shoes to scenes and and I thought oh I love that as well and then I love trace evidence which is I mean ultimately what I I've ended up in and it was this passion for all of these different disciplines just you know fantastic so I think they probably I probably asked too many questions if I'm honest <laughs> so I don't know whether they're no, no, such <laughs> no such thing as too many questions um, so you're kind of uh, it's kind of unusual because you catch all the criminals in a way and save the planet at the same time so yeah you're it's sort of a yeah you're a public servant in a way without actually being one yeah I suppose I am actually yeah I've got a responsibility to yeah for both crime fighting making our safe our streets safer ultimately that's what we're trying to do isn't it at the same time think about sustainability and what does our future look like we can solve crime, but we also need to solve some of these environmental issues because ultimately we would just want to we want a safe, sustainable, clean planet, don't we? That's what I we mean, want. Yes, if if we can get to that, yeah. That if we can get to that, if we yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. So just uh, moving then on to some of the techniques. I mean, you know, you use microscopy and IR spectroscopy. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about the application of those and how, you know, the different things have worked and how much of it's actually done in a lab versus mm. out in the wild? Yeah. Yeah, there's so many different techniques that can be applied. And when I think about trace evidence, in mm-hmm. fact, we're, a lot of the time I'm, I'm focusing on fibres. We also focus on hairs 
as well, but also other particulates at the same time. So, of course, plastic fibres and plastic polymers, this is also what I'm looking at in the environment, but it's also glass, paint, rubber, and all these lovely particulates that transfer from places. And what that means is that, that not w- just one technique is enough. So you can start off nice and I say relatively simple and get the you know optical properties, your morphological properties. That's great. Microscopy is fantastic for that. It really is. And it's really all about building a forensic strategy from that initial information, because you don't want to be throwing another three or four different techniques on, on these samples. If right at the early stages, they can be screened out as maybe limited importance, low priority, given the fact that you might have many particulars, you're going to understand which ones are going to be the most useful in this case, bearing in mind the case context and and the the different maybe garments, if it's fibres, suspects garments, et cetera, that are in play. So it's very much, I always call it the layer cake. So you build it up like like a cake, a many-layered cake, I may add, of different techniques and information about the evidence as you go along. And you end up with this, you know, not an even cake because you are every every sort of step of the way you're you're trying to understand, can I, and this is a word we use a lot, differentiate between these samples. So say the ones from the, the suspect compared to ones from the crime scene. And you throw in more techniques at it. So the next step, for example, could be Fourier transforming for red spectroscopy, which then adds this more information around its chemical properties might use Raman spectroscopy for the same purpose or similar purposes, might use microspectrophotometry for trying to quantify the actual colour or the dyes, for example, that are in the fibres. Every single layer of information that you get allows you to come to a more robust conclusion because we'd never go to court saying, you know what, we found some red fibres at the scene and uh, the suspect was wearing a red jumper and uh, that means that person was there without this, what's red? You know, what type of red? What's the fibre made out of? What's the shape of the fibre? Because they can be made in all different shapes. We call them cross-sectional shapes. Has it got any additives in there that have been added in by the manufacturer? All this information starts giving you that, well, it's not just a red fibre. Could have been a red fibre from that jumper. And there's a whole other areas of then interpretation we use with that information. So, you know, how common is that jumper? Is it is it mass produced and very little variation? And actually, can you not really tell the difference between that one and another one? Or in fact, is it a lot rarer? And that rarity of the evidence based on all this information, the techniques you've used really allows you to make that judgment. Is this low value evidence? It's going middling. Or is it actually really high value? It's what we call probative value, really, really high. And there's cases where that has been fantastic. The Sarah Payne case is a great example. There was one fibre there, and it was literally just a few fibres that got found, but this one particular fibre was a cotton fibre. We know how common cotton fibre is, but the way that it had been printed in terms of the dyeing actually on the original fabric gave it these properties, these qualities to it that actually made it incredibly rare. And it was able to be identified to actually a particular source of fabric that was in itself quite rare. And ultimately, that helped, helped lead to the conviction of Sarah Payne's murderer. And it's that it's that understanding of all the different layers of information, how rare they are, that gives you that end outcome or that or that conclusion. That's extraordinary. Now, it's, I was exactly going to ask, what are the high profile cases you've asked? It? Have there been? You've answered it. Have Have there been any more? The- oh yes, there's 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 a lot of cases actually where fibres evidence particularly plays a, an important part. For example, there's uh, uh, something called the Ipswich murderers. 
where she's which was based in Ipswich and it was a series of women who got murdered and there was fibres and hair evidence actually played a really key part with understanding again not just about linking people but how did they get there and when did they get there because the beauty of the likes of fibres evidence is that it's not just the who and you know arguably I'd be happy to talk you know when we talk about fingerprints and DNA and you know the who is better answered with DNA and fingerprints when we think about uniqueness but in, when you think about fibres, it also helps answer the when and the where and the how. So the, in the Ipswich murder case, it was trying to understand when this, the, ultimately the perpetrator came in contact with these women by trying to understand something called transfer and persistence. So in simply put, the evidence transfers between two people. How long does it last on that person? And you can actually understand that through a series of experiments and things that we know about these particulates and how they act that we can start thinking about timelines and starting to answer the question, well, it looks like they came in contact at this particular time frame, which then might marry up with other eyewitness accounts, time of death, for example. And it makes it incredibly powerful. So it's great the way that this evidence is, is not just used to be able to go, does this help identify the who? It's really more about the other questions. It's reconstruction of the crime scene. That's what it's helping to do. Mm. You sound almost like an artist, actually, when you're talking about it, especially when you talk about the the, the building, the the pattern of the um, analysis and the strategy. It, it does sound more like an art form in some ways. It might be just the way that you're describing it. But it does sound That's wonderful. Nice. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you've done so much. It's hard to choose the next thing to, to ask you about. I, I kind of want to skip a skip ahead to some of the microplastic research because you've travelled so much. You, well, you've certainly done, you know, gone to all these extraordinary corners of the world: the Great Barrier Reef, the you know, the Hudson and Mississippi rivers. The you've been to like farmland in Turkey and the sea in the Antarctic. I mean, God, what what a range! <laughs> I mean, <laughs> where where even to start from that from the traveling section? Should we start oh, with the Barrier Reef? I mean, you were yes. the first one to the for, the first forensic scientist to apply a forensic science approach to microplastic research, which we've already got touched on. But you were also part of the team that first discovered microplastics being ingested by deep sea organisms. What, how, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, um, it, that that it's a roller coaster ride. And I absolutely love it. And I always say, just around here, if anybody ever wants to combine science, travel, and adventure, oh, be a, do environmental forensics absolutely because it, 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 unbelievable places and unbelievable samples, and that's the thing. And the thing with the deep sea organisms, um, it, it, re, it was such a such a great opening for me into the world of microplastics because it, this this research was being driven by the Natural History Museum in London, and they had gathered some of these samples, and they asked and they asked such a such an important question. I'm so glad they asked it. They asked the question of, well, we've been noticing that we might be able to be identified, there might be the presence of, of microplastics in these really remote locations. So, for example, they were, they were taking biota, different organisms from really, really, you know, deep environments, 1,400 metres, 1,700 metres. And they're also taking sediment samples, taking sand samples and that as well. And 
at some at one point they said, hang on, I think we might be seeing some microplastics here. But but this is the important question. How do we know that those microplastics, microfibers in this case, all fibers, how do we know that they are actually from the deep sea being ingested by them? And it's not just contamination that has happened somewhere during the sampling, somewhere in the laboratory, sometime during the analysis. And that is where I, for the first time, got asked this question of, okay, is any forensic procedures or, or protocols that you would use in a lab, for example, out in the field to prevent contamination that you think we could start applying to these samples for the purposes of trying to understand if there's any microplastics in the, in the deep sea and being ingested? And I thought, oh, this is such a good question. Yes, I'm in. I'm absolutely going to help out with this because that is our bread and butter. You cannot do forensic science without constantly thinking contamination prevention, contamination prevention, because in court, if they ask the question of could this sample have been contaminated and you can't give an answer of how you have tried to mitigate or try to prevent that and monitor potential contamination, you're in a lot of trouble. So that application of can we do that in these incredibly dynamic environments and and those samples that were from the deep sea were taken on board a huge research vessel vessel. I was called um, it's James Cook. Massive. They have wet labs. And I've subsequently worked in lots of different, you know, different wet labs and things like that. And it's not like your lovely controlled environment that you have in a laboratory, in a, in a university, in a forensic provider setting. No, no. It is, you know, if you're going to get contamination, it's going to happen there. So the protocols that have got to be put in place have got to be so strict and well thought out. And that's ultimately what led me into looking at these samples, helping develop these protocols from the forensic science industry and then doing the analysis using forensic science analysis methods so that we could start understanding how many different potential sources were they? What are we actually seeing down there? And yeah, and part of that process was for, for the for the absolute the biologists there, the marine biologists to start going, let's think about the locations. Now we know that it's th- these ones here are, are not procedural contamination. What does this mean in terms of these animals? And of course, this included dissections, etc. And it is clear that they were ingesting them, which you know, when we think about these very remote locations, and at the time, you know, there wasn't that much done on things like remote deep sea locations. In fact, the, the main piece of work that was done there was actually one of the team that I worked with, and very little that was understood. When you start realizing that we are, we, we, our, our fibers from most likely clothing and, and other objects are ending up in those deep sea locations. I mean, that was shocking to me. You know, I, I'm not surprised when, when I, ex- I expect them to be in crime scenes. I expect them everywhere. But the fact that they're in the deep sea at those at those depths was was crazy. And it really started my my thinking and my work around microplastics because that's where I started thinking, well, contamination prevention, that's definitely one area that forensic science can help. But where else can forensic science help as well? And gosh, that's why we're sitting here talking about it today. So after all those years, these are the these are the questions I'm still asking. How else can we help as forensic scientists? Indeed. And it's interesting to hear about the dissections as well. I mean, were they, did you just get a little sardine or were there some bigger? Oh, (laughs) yes. So the marine biologists there who are very, they are very competent at these dissections, of course. And this is what they do, but they are handling things like sea cucumbers. So you imagine then they can be quite big, different like lobster types, but lobsters that, that live on the deep sea. So there's all different techniques that they use to, to ultimately try to dissect and, and sample those in from the different, from, from where they're actually feeding mechanisms all the way to obviously other, other body parts that were in, of interest. So they, they are very competent at that. And then those samples under these protocols then get sent to me, which is fantastic. 
kind of clean, but we don't expect clean samples. There's there's no clean samples when they've come from the environment. <laughs> and so how does microfiber pollution in, in ocean environments compare with other types of pollution? Like, for example, I don't know, shipwrecks or, you know, like the implosion of the Titan submarine. How, what is, is there a comparison? Is it, or is it too wildly dissimilar? It's, uh, you know what? That's it's su- such an important thing to consider because this idea of our macro litter from the many different, you know, uses of our environment, everything from like shipwrecks, etc., to just what we we've got big garbage patches that are in the middle of the ocean. There is an accumulation of all of our waste that has escaped our waste our, our waste treatment, and you know, it, from rivers, it, you know, it all ultimately you know can end up in the in the ocean. There's huge amounts there. How does that compare? It's really interesting because the 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 problems with macro litter are different to micro. So macro litter, not only is it an eyesore, but of course we're talking about you know ingestion by large mammals of this, and you know we've we've probably all seen, especially in the media, where you know they've dissected large mammals' bodies, seals for example, being found with plastic around the necks, where they've swallowed it, seabirds. You know, suffering from starvation because their stomachs are full because it's full of of these macroplastics. The micro is having micro effects to microorganisms and our ecosystem is so diverse that we know at a micro level when we've got that ingested by teeny tiny little organisms, this can accumulate up the food chain. So we're having different sources cause different problems for different organisms. So it's an all a related question. It absolutely is. But we have to ask slightly different questions. We have to do different analysis techniques. And, and, and a microscale, which, of course, what I've always done, I'm, I'm really interested in things that you don't necessarily see with the naked eye. You know, that's that's always been of my interest. The the analysis techniques you're going to apply there, because you can't, are going to be more diverse. They're going to maybe even be more complex because you don't know by looking at a teeny tiny portion of this of this plastic, well, what did it ultimately come from? Did a tiny little fragment come from a plastic bottle? Did it come from a polystyrene takeaway? Did it come from a plastic bag as a as a film? You know, this fibre that's found, was it from carpets? Was it from washing people's clothes? And it's ultimately ended in the environment, ended up in the environment. So it's kind of, a, it's more of an investigative question when it is of a small scale, because you go, how do we figure out what that has come from? What are our major polluters versus getting lots of macro litter items that assume that we can identify that what the original source was, or a lot easier at least. So uh-huh. different challenges, but both problematic. Indeed. And I suppose the answers to those more intricate questions what's ultimately going to provide the solution yes because it's sort of seen kind of satisfying in in the criminal justice sense if you if you're you know you you find who murdered someone they 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 get punished that's effectively the solution but in the um, environmental research there's a little bit more ground to cover before you get to that sort of real satisfying yeah we've solved it solved it moment you're absolutely right because you know we've really we've just coming out of the phase of are microplastics everywhere and you know we've we've pretty much every environment that there's been sampled there's been in those samples somewhere some amount of microplastics being found so the question of is it is it everywhere is really kind of been answered now it doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep looking because really what we need is very large data sets robust data sets that really try to understand 
actually what's the scale of this problem in these different environments and and that could be environments such as one particular coastline or it could be the difference between you know air over a city versus the soil in the in the ground in that same city like even thinking about different environmental compartments and we need lots of data to understand the scale so that that research still ha- has to you know happen but now it begs the question of well where's it all coming from and what's the biggest source of these pollutants? Where should we put our energy? So, you know, should we put all our energy in in having replacing plastic bottles? Okay, there's definitely some value there. Not being controversial here, but that's the same question we should ask is actually should we be looking at the the fabrics that are being used in clothing? Should we be demanding somewhere lobbying for these fabrics to be low shed? So that they are not releasing the same amount of fibres into our environment while we're wearing them and while they're being washed. Now, this is where it's an interesting point of view for me, because, of course, remember, I straddle the forensic and the environmental world. But imagine a world where we have got zero. It's almost impossible, but zero shed fabrics being worn. Yeah. So they're not polluting the environment, even when being washed. Bit of an extreme example, because that's incredibly difficult. But imagine that now all of a sudden we can't use forensic fibres for case investigations because they're not being shed and transferred between people and between scenes. So my goodness, a solution for the environment from a clothing point of view is actually a problem in the forensic world. How interesting. So does that mean that we just ignore the problem? No, not at all, because we can think about more sustainable fabrics and we can think about fabrics that are not, you know, that are bio, you know, when we think about bio fabrics, fabrics that are more healthy for the environment. So I'm not, there's, there's a solution is not the end of one or the other, but it is something that needs to be thought about and, and at a global scale, of course. Of course. And there's always a knock on effect. There's always easy isn't it and it's you you know you've got a wonderful perspective of such intricate detail into two different perspectives which I think most people probably don't have but that appreciation of how drastic change in one area is going to have such a significant impact in another so I mean I was I've just skimmed through some of these publications some of these papers you've written and one of them jumped out at me in particular, and it was quite early on on the list. It says the application of tape listing, lifting for microplastic pollution monitoring. So this tape lifting, I just wondered if you could just talk me through that a little bit. Yes, because this is it's, it's unusual. It's an unusual title, isn't it? Like, what what is this? Absolutely. So tape lifting is very much a forensic idea. We use uh, tape. And when I say tape, think of like, you know, it's akin to your sellotape that you would use for wrapping up your your, your presents. You know, it's, it's that idea, but they have been, you know, well thought out. They're much bigger, but essentially it's sticky tape that gets used to onto surfaces of all different types. So we would take a tape, for example, and we would place it on suspects' clothes, on victims' clothes, on surfaces, door handles, anything where we think contact might have occurred. And the sticky surface, of course, picks up particulates. And we're hoping what that does, and we know this now because we've been using this for decades and decades and decades, and that that recovery is, is getting the information that's on the surface. So, you know, the more recently transferred particulates, the ones that we're interested in, the ones that are going to help tell us the story about what happened. So that's what we've been doing in forensic science for years. Yes, honestly, tape lifting, forensic science, it's it's a key key piece of kit in any uh, crime scene officer's, you know, scene to crime officer's kit. But my thought was, well, can we use tape in a way to be able to recover microplastics 
from the samples that we're taking because a lot of the samples that get taken they have to go through some sort of filter system so if we've got water we filter the water and we filter onto filter papers as you can imagine if it's air and we're, we're pumping it using an air pump they're onto filters so you know the, these microplastics invariably even if they come from the soil and they've had to go through different separation things they end up on a filter paper that someone has had have to then go through tediously i may add and go is that a microplastic is that a microplastic and try by eye actually pick these out now of course human error a lot of these are still they're not clean samples not clean filter papers it's so easy to miss what are microscopic microplastics but we to get the better science to get the better data we want to capture everything on there so i my thinking was well we use tape for for crime scenes for microscopic particulates can we now use a tape on these filter papers for the same purpose we recover them and at the same time we've got it in a very safe environment comes back to anti-contamination again we've got them sealed on there and then we can start searching and actually not just searching just using high magnification in fact we could start searching using techniques that are going to help these proper pop out so something called polarized light microscopy there's a setting that you use there that if you um have got anything that's called birefringent i won't go into that but essentially your plastics the vast majority of them are birefringent you pop this setting on called cross polars and it's beautiful it's like a light show they all ping out ding 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 now other things are birefringent as well but i tell you what it's incredibly helpful when you're searching something you think oh there's nothing on this and then you put this setting and you go oh my goodness there's hundreds and that allows you to visualize them, identify them. And in fact, that whole process allows you to get quite a lot of information as well. So you're able to get, you know, what, what's the shape of them? What's the color of them? Have you got additives in? And even looking at that value, that biofringence value helps tell you what indicatively, what polymer type it actually is. Mm-hmm. So you get so much information really quickly. I'm like, I don't understand why everyone's not doing this already, because this is the kind of thing that we would do in forensic science. But at the same time as this, we did have a problem in forensic science, and this is how we end up sort of, you know, one helping another like this, because a lot of the the searching for evidence is manual as well. So you've got it on a tape, and that's lovely, but no one was using polarized like microscopy to do it because ah, all tape that was currently being used was also biofringent. Why? It's made out of plastics. So you're trying to look for a plastic fibre between a plastic backing and some plastic uh, tape. Surprise, surprise, you can't see it. So it all was done manually. So it was actually having a similar problem to the environmental area, albeit at least they were contained in these tapes. So this is where me and a a co-inventor at Stafford University developed this new tape for the forensic world to help them able to search more quickly using polarised light microscopy and other techniques as well, actually, um, for their evidence which then got applied in the environmental world. So it's kind of a, that tape was kind of a helping hand for the forensic world, but at the same time, my goodness, we might as well do the same thing for the environment as well. And now it's being used in, in loads of studies, which is fantastic to see. It really is. It really, and is that one of the things that's one of the, one of the patents that you hold, that tape? Yes, exactly. That tape, that, that design of that tape and that use of it. And it's nice to see these two worlds using this now. So this forensic science world, which we've got projects at the moment that we're developing a whole automated system, actually, not just about then being able to analyze it in the tape it's about using automated systems to detect this this evidence and we're doing that for trying to tackle violence against women and crime type scenarios but the same idea and same approaches of being able to try to do some automated Im- imaging so or image de- uh, detection so looking for this we're doing for microplastics because it's is a huge overlap here we're interested in the same materials 
you know, essentially. It's just such an extraordinary level of attention to detail. It takes, I think, anyone's anyone's idea of attention to detail to a whole nother level, shines a shines a new light on attention to detail, I think. And then that you've also won an award for collaborative teaching. And I'm thrilled actually to see that, that this is on here because I think the the most marvelous thing surely can be for children, students to to listen to you and hear what a wonderful world they could be entering into. So what was that award for? Oh, gosh, yeah. So we're all about, not just me, I've got to say here, uh, the team at Staffs my, and my, my colleagues were all about this. How do we engage others? How do we get people excited about science? And how for our students, do we give them real, real life work scenarios, working with all these people we work with? How do we share that? And that's what that award was, actually, for part of this was about how we set up. And from my point of view, how do I get students involved in things like fibers work with police and with police forces around the UK so that two things. Firstly, the police have got some challenges and they really would like someone to be able to investigate this and, and, and think about new methods or new, new solutions and new approaches. Like, how can we use this evidence differently? And at the same time, how does that student get, before even getting a job in this world, get that insight into, oh my goodness, this is what it's like to work on investigations. This is the kind of skills and qualities I need. Getting to talk with not just us who work in this area, but all of our collaborators in all these different locations and places that they then got this real well, passion and then inspired to then move to that next level. So this absolutely is all from inspiring young children as well and, and getting them to start asking questions and being critical, you know, I mean, what, what, can, you know what, what should science be doing? How can we address these problems uh, and, and getting them excited? So yeah, that's exactly what that award was all about. <laughs> Well, that's one way. It sounds very, very, very well deserved, that award. And now you're a curriculum influencer. Are there any other areas that you'll be influencing policy? I think you've already had quite a hand in already. If there, you know, if you could change, I don't, we haven't got much time left. So we should probably, I shouldn't ask too big a question, but have you got a, have you got a policy? Policy is a big question, isn't it? (laughs) On your radar. I tell you what, at the moment, right, I've really got my teeth into and I absolutely think there's so many things that we can do to improve this is that other area of um, environmental forensics that I mentioned, which is wildlife crime investigation. Um, And at the moment, I'm working on a a big project, actually, that spreads across Europe, lots of different partners. And what we're trying to do and talking about policy is really improve the way that wildlife crime investigations are being actually tackled, because you know, there's a whole thing about all the, you know, effort resources, everything that's applied to it. So it's called human crimes, crimes against humans. When we talk about crimes against animals, and remember, this is animals part of our environment as well. You know, what what can we do then? How can we improve that? And part of this work is around forensic training and trying to understand how things can change in different in different locations across Europe to help facilitate those on the ground who are actually the ones who are detecting these crimes but they for example they're not from law enforcement they're, they're rangers for example mm-hmm. how do we empower those how do we how do we train those in forensic techniques how do we ultimately end up empowering those appropriately through correct legislation legislation change um so that I, 
more of these crime scenes can be properly investigated using the same, you know, every, the will is there, absolutely, but it's about improved resources, it's about improving, you know, the structure of how these these crime scenes get, you know, and these crimes generally get investigated. And so that's one thing that I, I'm really into at the moment. And policy change, Touchwood, part of this project has got something called a policy lab. And it is about how do we take this research, this working with these different partners from Bulgaria, Romania, Spain, Ukraine, um, and how do we help them implement what this this project's all about? And and that definitely, well, touch wood that we're going to see some some real impact there. That's what we're really hoping. Fingers crossed. Sounds like they could do with something like that in the New Forest and other places like that. I mean, I don't know how you differentiate between an accident and a crime when it comes to hurting wildlife. But it oh, seems gosh. like if you run into a horse in the new forest, that seems fairly criminal. Oh, yes. You're absolutely right. You know what? And it's, it's we've got a lot of ways to go as well in the UK. We can definitely improve the processes that we're using. We definitely can. And that's kind of part of this idea of this knowledge share and working. Because you're right, these are challenging crimes to solve. Not only just because of this accident or other explained, you know, defence that gets given. It's, it's a very common one is I thought it was the shooting season for that particular animal. I thought I was legally killing that animal. When in fact it isn't. And there's so many complex factors to to incorporate into an investigation. And at the same time, these crime scenes, remember, are outside in the middle of nowhere, really remote, in in dynamic environments where you have to think still about evidence loss. So to, to, to be someone who goes to those crime scenes, my goodness, you've got to be tough. You have got to be able to see eye for detail. My goodness, it's really difficult to spot evidence in these environments, but it is still there. And that's what it is all about, improving that and empowering those as well that do this. Mm. Well, I hope you make good progress in that area quite quickly. That would be very nice. Now, it's kind of hard to draw it to a close because I could probably talk like this forever. You've so much to ask you, so much more that's just going to have to go unsaid. But you're going to be speaking at Lab Innovations in November. So anyone who wants to hear more of you can come and hear you there in Absolutely. the Royal Society of Chemistry Theatre. Perfect, um, yes. We'll look forward to that. And I guess I wondered, um, it's slightly putting you on the spot, and I don't really want to do that, but just in case you have got something... Do you have a book that you could recommend? What's your favourite go-to book that you've looked at? Is there you any- know, mm. yes. For, for those, so I'm just going to ask the question, for those that want to learn more about forensic science, yeah, a great book about this. And yes, it is a textbook that's kind of technical, in the, but not too technical, and it gives an absolute coverage for Every, every aspect, almost every aspect. And it's called, as you probably guessed this, nice and simple, does what it says on the tin. It's called Forensic Science by Jackson and Jackson. And it is a great example, of especially the huge amount of different disciplines in there. It gives you this taster for all of these, from blood pattern analysis, DNA analysis, to trace evidence, to all of this. So I always say, if you want to learn a little bit more, a little bit about each of these topics without too much depth, that's a great one. Love it. I've got, I've got it here on my bookshelf just underneath me. <laughs> Great recommendation. Well, thank you so much, Professor Claire Winnett. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this.